The Accounting Matters Podcast lives up to its name. Every other week, we bring you a new episode where we cover vital accounting topics that actually matter to accounting professionals. Each episode, we introduce a new topic and then highlight and discuss the key areas. We're your hosts, Adam Olson and Zach Smith, and we hope you stick around for all things accounting from A to Z. From Embark's headquarters in Dallas, Texas, this is Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark. Hi, hello, good afternoon. It's great to be with each of you. I'm Zach Smith, Embark's East Region Market President, and I'm joined with my co-host, Adam Olson, Embark's Accounting Advisory Practice Leader. On this episode, we'll be picking up previous discussions around carbon accounting and looking further into a key component of it, emission factors. Helping us in this conversation, we're welcoming back to the podcast, Fabian Garavito, a member of Embark's Sustainability Service Practice. Adam, Fabian, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us, Zach. to be here. Adam, let's go ahead and, and kick things off. And to help set the stage, can you briefly explain why emissions factors are important and how we generally define what is an emissions factor? Yeah, it's a good question. I think you kind of alluded to it in, in the intro a bit, you know, that emission factors really have been fundamental to carbon accounting as a whole. Um, the factors themselves really allow us to navigate the complexity in calculating a company's emissions, um, which is obviously critical for a number of different reasons. If you think about it, you know, calculating your emissions gives companies greater visibility into what is their actual environmental impact because they can actually track those, uh, the impact there, and it enables them to have a better understanding of what you know greenhouse gas emissions that their business or operations produce have on the, the broader world. Emission factors can also help kind of empower how companies maybe make certain sustainability strategies for their organizations. For example, if they calculate um, their emissions as being particularly high in a certain area or from a certain source, you know, they might take certain steps um, to change it to help make a more of a positive difference in that particular area or source. And then kind of last but not least, you know, with the rapid developments of sustainability reporting requirements in the works, you know, we've talked about previously with the different rulemaking that's underway, at least at the time of this recording, um, emission factors will continue to be critical elements of just producing the required reporting and disclosures under those wide range of rules that are out there. At its core, though, like an emission factor essentially is just a representative value that attempts to relate the quantity of a pollutant um, released to the atmosphere with the activity associated with the release of that pollutant. So these factors are generally expressed as kind of a weight of the pollutant divided by a unit weight or volume or distance or duration of the activity that emanated that pollutant itself. Yeah, and a lot of factors actually um, facilitate estimation of emissions from a variety of sources. So, you know, some factors may be simple averages of all available data of acceptable quality, you know, and they're generally kind of assumed to be representative long-term averages. So there's, there's quite a few different sources that might be used depending on the factor you're looking for, depending on the location, source, industry, et cetera. Okay. Um, yeah, and so that's helpful. But as I'm thinking about emissions factors and the formula for calculating uh, those emissions, what does that even look like? Yeah, so to calculate emissions, I mean, at a very simplistic way, I'll I'll make this make it the accounting seem like it's really simple, but it's not. Um, 
an emission factor is essentially just multiplied by the corresponding activity data, such as the production output of a manufacturing plant, the energy maybe contained in a mass of fuel combusted, or the amount of electricity consumed as examples. Uh, one thing you want to keep in mind is that the activity data that you, you use, it needs to also be converted to match the units used by the emissions factor in order to calculate the greenhouse gas emissions. So you have to have kind of comparable pieces of data that go into it. And so stepping back from that, like the basic formula is essentially just activity data times your emissions factor equals your greenhouse gas emissions. Okay. And I know that sounds simple on surface, but like we'll get into more complexity mm -hmm. today. For okay. Sure. I'm sure we will, Adam. <laughs> and you know, I know previously we've talked about emissions being categorized as scope one, scope two, scope three, all under GHG protocol. Mm -hmm. Briefly remind our listeners and myself on each of these scopes and how we need to be thinking about that. Yeah, so scope one emissions are kind of those direct greenhouse gas emissions that essentially come from sources that are controlled or owned by a company or organization. Scope two emissions are indirect greenhouse gas emissions that are associated with the purchase of electricity, uh, steam, heat, cooling. Um, and although scope two emissions physically occur, you know, at the facility where they are generated, they are accounted for in a company's greenhouse gas inventory um, because they are the direct result of the organization's energy use. And then the more broad category is scope three emissions, which are really the result of activities that are not from assets owned or controlled by the, the reporting organization, but ones that indirectly kind of impact the organization kind of up and down its full value chain. Okay. You know, Adam, are emissions categorized in any other ways than scope one, two, and three? You know, for example, the source of the emission, do we want to think about that? Yeah, especially when you're, you're starting to kind of dive into emission factors. So the greenhouse gas protocol for kind of reporting you know, identify kind of the scope one, two, three emission levels. Um, but then when it comes back to actually coming up with your greenhouse gas emission calculations um, and looking at the emission factor that goes into that formula, you know, you'll want to like broadly think about what are some of the other sources of emissions and kind of the key sources will then help drive the emission factor selection and methodologies you should be using. So some of those other more broad categories you want to think about are like stationary emissions versus mobile emissions, um, kind of electric emissions, as well as this, you know, kind of fourth one here that you'll kind of hear people refer to, which are known as fugitive emissions. Okay. Fabian, I'm going to come on over to you. Excited to hear your thoughts on this. Uh, when we're looking at that first source of emissions, stationary, what falls under the purview of this category? Sure thing, Zach. So the answer is in the name itself. Stationary sources of greenhouse gas emissions are sources that are stationary. Sources that are non-transport related. So this can include things such as boilers, heaters, furnaces, kilns, ovens, and any other equipment or machinery that combusts carbon-bearing fuels or waste stream materials. Uh, that being said, 
not all stationary combustion sources burn fossil fuels. You can also have biomass, which is non-fossil, uh, which can be combusted in stationary sources dependent, independently or co-fired with uh, fossil fuels. So these uh, can be things like forestry-derived products, agriculturally-derived products, or biomass-derived products. So combustion of these fuels in stationary combustion sources can result in emissions of carbon dioxide, methane, and uh, nitrous oxide, or other GHGs such as the uh, fluorinated gases that we talked about in our previous episode. One thing to note here, if you do burn or combust biomass fuels, the greenhouse gas protocol requires you to break CO2 emissions from these biomass fuels separately from uh, fossil fuel emissions. Okay. Now, stationary emissions, um, we've gone through that. Now, how are they generally calculated? Are there prescribed methods that we would use? Sure. So there are generally two methods used uh, when it comes to measuring uh, emissions from stationary sources. There is the direct measurement uh, method and then the fuel analysis method. So under the direct measurement method, you use what is known as a SEMS or a CEMS, a continuous emissions monitoring system. So a continuous emissions monitoring is the continuous measurement of pollutants emitted into the atmosphere and exhaust gases from combustion or industrial processes. The second method, which I believe is the more common one, is the fuel analysis method. Fuel analysis is essentially an approach in which carbon content factors or emissions factors are applied to the fuel input to determine your emissions. The fuel analysis method to calculate CO2 emissions requires determining a carbon content of fuel combusted using either fuel-specific information or default emissions factors and applying that carbon content to the amount of fuel burned or combusted to calculate and quantify your CO2 emissions. So as Adam was saying earlier, you're essentially taking your fuel quantity to a times an emissions factor to get to your CO2 emissions. Okay, so we've got that for stationary. Let's talk now mobile emissions. Talk to me about this category and you know potentially how we would calculate that. Sure, so mobile emissions are sources primarily related to transport sources. An example of greenhouse gases emitted from uh, these types of sources can be carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide. Again, those are the three big ones that the industry is really focused on right now, but it can also have some of those other fluorinated gases. And these are directly emitted through the combustion of fuels in, in these types of mobile equipment. Okay. Now, how would we calculate mobile emissions? Sure. So for CO2 emissions specifically, they're derived as a function of the volume of the fuel combusted, the density of the fuel, the carbon content of the fuel, and the fraction of carbon that is oxidized to CO2. There are generally three equations that may be used in practice to calculate these emissions. The appropriate equation to use really depends on the level of information and the characteristics of the fuel being consumed. So as more information is known, the equation adds additional variables to derive a better measurement. For example, knowing the fuel's carbon content, we'll use an equation that's different, uh, that includes an assumption for that carbon content versus just having uh, the quantity of fuel used. Once the equation to be used is selected, companies will then determine the amount of fuel combusted, determine the equation inputs, and calculate the emissions. So when we're talking about determining the amount of fuel combusted, it is just that. Each type of fuel should be quantified separately. You should know the quantities utilized. And you can get this mainly from uh, fuel purchase receipts or purchase records. When you're talking about determining the equation inputs, 
We're mainly talking about other inputs such as the appropriate emissions factor, if you know a higher or lower heating value, incorporating that, or if you know a carbon content of your fuel. And then once you figure out all the inputs, then you calculate the emissions by selecting the appropriate equation to calculate your CO2. To maximize the accuracy of emissions calculations, it is useful to have as much information as humanly possible about the organization's mobile sources of emissions. So some of the things that you can have uh, as information, as data to help you in your calculations could be things like fuel type, fuel use, uh, distance traveled if you have a fleet, fuel economy. You can use this to back into a factor if you don't know uh, either the fuel use or the distance traveled, and then your type of vehicle, such as model year uh, and then type of engine, because there are useful tools out there that can help you determine greenhouse gas emissions based on the type of vehicle that you have. Okay, Fabian, I'm sure we can spend an entire episode um, <laughs> on any of these sources of emissions and doing a deeper dive, but let's move along to the next source, electricity emissions. Talk to me about what qualifies as this type of emission. Sure, so when we're talking about electricity, Electricity, and we use the term electricity, we're broadly referring to purchased electricity, steam, heating, or cooling. So it's kind of an umbrella overarching term. These are also known and referred to as scope two indirect emissions. And we can refer that back to our previous episode, which are emissions from sources not owned by your company. So when we say electricity, the term is referring broadly to purchased electricity, steam, heat, or cooling. They're also referred to as scope two indirect emissions. Indirect emissions are those that result from an organization's activities, but are actually emitted from sources owned by other entities. In other words, you're not directly burning the fuels to produce the electricity, but you're indirectly causing that by using something that requires the electricity. Okay, and so how are electricity emissions generally calculated? Sure, so the greenhouse gas protocol calls for two different types of reporting. Uh, it's gonna be location-based versus market-based methods for scope two. The location-based method considers average emissions factors for the electricity grids that provide electricity. There's a couple types of location-based emissions factors available. There are direct line emission factors, regional emissions factors, and national emissions factors. So under direct line, an organization may purchase electricity through a direct line connection as opposed to using electricity from a distribution grid. In a case like this, the emissions factor for that direct line is preferred for calculating emissions under the location-based method. If you're not using a direct line emissions factor, then you can move on to a regional emissions factor. So if an organization purchases electricity that is derived through a grid, the organization should use published emissions factors based on the geographic location for each of its facilities. For example, operations in the US, the recommended regional factors are the grid factors published by the EPA's Emission and Generation Resource Integrated Database, otherwise known as EGRID. If you don't have a regional emissions factor, you can utilize a national emissions factor. If regional factors are not available, go with the national factors such as those published by a national government or the International Energy Agency, known as the, e, the IEA. So that's great, Fabian. Let's talk a little bit now about the market-based method. 
Sure. So the market-based method considers contractual arrangements under which the organization procures power from specific sources, such as fossils, renewables, or other generation facilities. So there are several types of market-based emissions factors available. Uh, some of the ones, some of the main ones could be energy attribute certificates, which include things like renewable energy certificates or guarantees of origin, which essentially guarantee your company uh, the source of where your energy is coming from. There are contracts. Uh, uh, such as power purchase agreements, and then they are uh, supplier-specific emissions factors. So an electricity supplier, such as a regulated utility or a deregulated supplier, may provide uh, information to its customers on the emissions factors associated with their own specific electricity product. Okay. Uh, it is recommended that organizations calculate emissions for each of their facilities separately as opposed to aggregating multiple facilities to calculate these emissions. So this is going to increase the accuracy and your credibility of your inventory. Okay. Now, Fabian, what are some of the types of activity data that's needed to even calculate these types of emissions? Sure. So to quantify scope two indirect emissions, the data needed is the amount of electricity that is purchased and the related emissions factors. And you can gather electricity consumption data through utility bills or other purchase records. However, if you don't have uh, purchase data for certain facilities or operations, you should uh, estimate that data for completeness in your GHG inventory. Organizations may also estimate electricity consumption using published values for average energy consumption per square foot, right? So if you have a building uh, and you don't know what your space is uh, utilizing, you can utilize something known as the Commercial Building Energy Consumption Survey, or the CBEX, that is provided by the U.S. Energy Information Administration to help you estimate your space uh, electricity consumption. One thing to note, electricity, heat, and cooling uh, is usually typically reported in energy units. So if you look at your uh, energy bills, it'll have something like kilowatt hours or megawatt hours, and this is what you'll use uh, as an input to your calculation. Okay. Adam, I want to jump over to you and wrap up our emission sources with the last one that we highlighted, and that's fugitive emissions. Uh, what qualifies necessarily as a fugitive emission? Yeah, as the term implies, you know, fugitive emissions are those that tend to kind of sneak away, but should be included in, you know, a company's greenhouse gas inventory. So most often fugitive emissions are associated with leaks of gases and vapors and you know some common examples here are leaks that occur in different industrial activities or equipment so if you think about you know appliances like hvacs refrigeration storage tanks you know those are some of the more common areas where we tend to see fugitive emissions and leaks can also occur at you know different points of use in the equipment itself so it could occur during the installation of the equipment it could be just part of the regular kind of day-to-day -day operating life cycle that there's always a slow release or leak, or it could even occur when equipment needs to be repaired, upgraded, or even just, you know, removal at the end of the use of that equipment. Uh, in most cases, you know, occurrences of fugitive emissions are small and they're often difficult to detect because of that. Okay. And how are these emissions from fugitive emissions generally calculated? Yeah, so there's four approaches that are generally used to measure most fugitive emissions that come from the more common sources, so refrigeration, air conditioning, fire suppression, and industrial gases. Uh, the first one's known as the screening method, um, you know, which actually requires the least amount of actual data collection. And, 
you know, is not applicable often for quantifying emissions from purchased gases. It's also generally the one that's least recommended because it has the, the greatest level of uncertainty. Um, so that being said, there's other methods that are probably more commonly used. So some of those include the method for purchased gases, which applies to an organization that purchases, uses, and releases industrial gases. And then kind of the last two methods are, are similar in vain. So you've got a method referred to as the material balance method, um, and then kind of a, a more simplistic version known as the simplified material balance method. And that method is really recommended for organizations that maintain their own equipment and requires available data on the total inventory of refrigerants um, at the beginning of the period, at the end of the period. It also includes purchases during the reporting period and changes kind of in the total uh, refrigerant capacity. Um, and that material balance method can also be used to calculate other types of emissions, like things that come from fire suppression equipment as well. And in a similar vein, there's another method, the simplified method, which might be more you know, relevant or practical to use like when organizations maybe use contractors to help service some of their refrigerant containing equipment and may not track some of that information themselves. Okay. And so Adam, now that we have the various sources of emissions more or less defined with general methods of calculations for each of these, I do have some more questions um, broadly around emissions factors. Yep. You know, how are these emission factors actually developed in practice? Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that emission factors can be quantified. I think most commonly there's numerous case studies that have been conducted and reviewed. And from those case studies, what you end up seeing is just kind of published emission sources that have been scientifically backed. Um, so a lot of regulatory agencies, et cetera, like the EPA, some of the international ones, they will have, you know, gone through kind of the due diligence to um, produce emission factors that make sense. But there are also other um, parties out there that are um, publishing their own emission information as well. Um, that's also relevant and reliable. Um, you know, one thing to think about is that emission factors will vary in the breadth of activity or activities they cover with some emission factors being focused on single sources and other emission factors uh, may be aggregated across multiple sources, processes, or value chains. So just really trying to understand kind of, you know, your inventory, the source of that inventory, and then really trying to equate it to an emission factor that is the most relevant and reliable for then calculating your, your emissions calculations. Okay. Adam, help our listeners, you know, where would their companies find an appropriate emissions factor and what should they keep in mind when they're selecting one? Yeah, so I guess it depends a bit. Like we've, you know, we've talked, we've mentioned this on this podcast and then past episodes, you know, most leading countries are going to have their own kind of publicly available information that you can use to help inform you of emission factors. So again, shout out to the EPA on that, but also even like state agencies and regulators also produce stuff even more localized like for for certain states um, within you know domestically here and then on an international front as well i think one thing to keep in mind is that not all countries or researchers compile their emission factors in the same way um, so if you are searching for you know very specific emissions factors they're maybe not publicly available through the epa or even the ghg or um, maybe you want something that's a little bit more nuanced. Just a couple things to keep in mind is, you know, one is around kind of the geographic relevance. 
And what we mean by that is that emissions factors typically correspond to specific geographic areas, um, but for some emission sources, location may not be relevant. Um, so just kind of keeping that in mind, depending on what you're looking for. And then also thinking about just the scale of applications. So, you know, emissions factors can be representative at various scales. So that could be at a national or regional level where an emissions factor could represent the average emissions rate for a specified activity that occurs at that kind of national or regional um, level. And therefore, it may represent a range of specific technologies or practices that are used. And then you could also have site-specific kind of emission factors that are applied, you know, more site-specific. So something that is occurring at a specific facility or maybe that's using specific technologies um, or inputs would be used instead. And maybe just to round us out a few more best practices. So one would just be understand, you know, whatever reference, what how reliable the reference is that provided that emission factor. So does it come from peer-reviewed literature, a governmental agency, et cetera? Uh, another thing to think about is that the selected admission factor that you, you make should specify the activities to which they are applicable. And that you know, may specify geographic or contextual application limits for those activities. So just another thing to keep in mind. And then kind of the final one I would just toss in there is that companies need to be aware of how those emission factors are presented so they can understand, again, what units of conversions will be required. Um, and Fabian can probably speak to this better than me, but you know, some of the more common areas I think we tend to see when people are calculating um, emissions is that in their emission inventories, they have just simple unit conversion errors when they're trying to apply an emission factor against a certain activity unit. Yeah. Well, Adam, Fabian, this has been extremely helpful. I really appreciate the insight that you've been providing around emissions factors, specifically uh, from a carbon accounting perspective. So uh, thank you both for the knowledge and insight that you bring. And to our listeners, thank you so much for joining in again to another recording and episode of the Accounting Matters podcast powered by Embark. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issues.